Well, Romans 1 is where we're at this morning, returning to verses 18 to 32. And let me reread this passage as, as I begin, and uh, we'll finish looking at uh, what Paul said here uh, this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and exchanged, or excuse me, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Father, I can't think of another passage in your word that is more politically incorrect, controversial, divisive, potentially divisive, than this text. And Lord, there's some hard things that need to be said today based on your word. And I pray you'd put a guard over my mouth not to say the truth, to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love and grace. And Lord, that you would make us a discerning body of believers, that we would not be conformed to the thinking of the world when it comes to these very sensitive matters, but at the same time, we would not be critical and judgmental and ungracious, but Lord, we would demonstrate the compassion and the love of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards has been heralded as the greatest American theologian, the last great Puritan preacher. On July 8, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, Edwards delivered what is still considered to this day the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil. In fact, the sermon is assigned still today in some American literature classes for students to read and analyze and discuss. The sermon I'm referring to is titled Sinners, what? In the Hands of an Angry God. And Edwards first preached this sermon in his home church in Northampton, Massachusetts, and it met with little reaction. But the second time he preached it in Enfield, people in the audience were visibly shaken. It, it, it was said that people convulsed and cried out to God for mercy in the middle of the sermon, so much so that he had to ask people to settle down so that he could finish the sermon. Not only did 
Edward's sermon spark great controversy. Some have referred to that, as, that sermon as the sermon for which New England never forgave him. But it served to fan the flames of the Great Awakening, which was a spiritual revival that swept across the New England states as a result of that sermon and many others. The aim of Edward's sermon was to awaken his listeners to the horrors of hell and the precarious position of those who had yet to repent of their sin and turn to Christ for salvation. And his text for that sermon was Deuteronomy chapter 32-35, which says this, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Obviously, this verse was originally spoken by God through Moses about the nation of Israel, but Edwards applied this thread of God's impending judgment to his hearers by reminding them that they were the objects of God's anger and wrath, and it was only because of his sovereign pleasure that they weren't already in hell. And so he urged them to to take advantage of the opportunity to come to Christ before it was too late. And what is, I think, most memorable about this sermon is the graphic metaphors that Edward used to describe God's wrath and hell. And I thought I, I should read just a portion of this sermon to you this morning. In fact, I, I actually know of a pastor who one Sunday simply got up and read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God for his sermon. Uh, I'm going to spare you that uh, this morning. But I I do want to read a portion of this sermon, but I need to warn you ahead of time that this will be a shock to your system, because we are not used to hearing preaching like this in our day. Let me quote from Jonathan Edwards. Men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They've deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The flood of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. Have you had enough yet? He goes on to describe the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His anger towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to awake again this morning. And there's no 
reason to be given why you've not dropped into hell since you arose today, but that God's hand has held you up. And then he gets to really meddling here. He says, there is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you've sat here in the house of God right now. Provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down to hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder and nothing to lay hold of it to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you ever have done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And then he concluded by saying, how many is it likely will remember this sermon in hell. And it would be a wonder if some that are now present should now be in hell in a very short time, even before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health, quiet and secure, should be there before tomorrow morning. You have reason to wonder that you are not already in hell, but here you are in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity such as you now enjoy? Now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, therefore let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Now to our ears that may sound a bit over the top. Like Edwards is maybe overstating the situation. And I think the reason why that might be is because we do not truly understand how sobering, how terrifying the wrath of God really is. And Edwards' terrible indictment of sinful mankind, I think, is much like the one that Paul filed here in Romans 1. And Last week, I likened this passage to um, us sitting in a hospital room, and we went for a, a routine checkup, and, and, and the doctor comes back in after some tests, and, and, he, and he breaks the news to us that we have terminal cancer, that, that, that we have an operable cancer, and, and we're going to die. We have a condition, and it's called sin, and, and we're shocked, we're stunned, we don't know what to say. Well, another way to view this passage is that this is not necessarily a hospital room, but a courtroom. And Paul is like a, a prosecuting attorney who brings divine charges, God's charges against ungodly and unrighteous mankind. And in verses 18 to 32, Paul gave the most graphic description of man's depravity and God's wrath found anywhere in the Bible. And simply put, what he's saying here is that God is justifiably angry at those who reject his clear revelation of himself, and he will punish them accordingly. That's the, I guess, the main point of, of these verses. And again, we need to understand them in, this context, in their context. We, we mentioned last week that the theme verse or verses of the book of Romans is in verses 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so you think, okay, here we go. We're off to the races. We're going to learn about the righteousness of God. 
that's revealed from faith to faith, but, but then he doesn't explain how the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel until chapter 3, verse 21, where he picks up the theme of the righteousness of God. What he does is for the rest of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, and for half of chapter 3, he focuses on why the righteousness of God is revealed. We, we want to know how it's revealed. He's going to get to that, but he wants us to know first why the righteousness of God is revealed, namely because man is unrighteous and under the wrath of God. And so chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, is simply a description of our lack of righteousness. Why do we need the righteousness of God? Because we don't have it. We need His through Christ. And I think Paul, he, he knew that the better we understand our sinfulness and the punishment we deserve as a result, the more we'll appreciate the good news of the gospel. I was talking to Kelly after church last Sunday and she just mentioned to me that at the end of the sermon that she got teared up because she was overwhelmed by God's love in light of the fact that we are by nature objects of God's wrath. And that's exactly the way the Bible wants us to think in our minds. Bad news first. When you truly understand the bad news, the good news is even better than you could imagine. It's Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's just like breathtaking. That but, it's the breathtaking but. Wow. Wow. Look at the contrast. And we talk about being saved. We're, we're saved. I'm so glad. I'm, are you saved? I'm saved. Yeah, we're so, we need to all go out and get people saved. Well, saved from what? Well, saved from the wrath of God is what we're talking about. And the reason we need the gospel and the reason we need to tell others the gospel is because apart from Christ, we are damned to hell for all eternity. And I think that's why Paul was so gung-ho to preach the gospel and why we should be so gung-ho to preach the gospel. He understood the, the condition, the awful condition of mankind, that if left to ourselves, we'll end up in hell. And so in order to impress on his readers and the Roman churches and us why it's so urgent that we preach the gospel, Paul explained three particulars of God's righteous rage against man's unrighteous rebellion against him. And we, we said we're going to call uh, God's wrath righteous rage because it is righteous. It's right. It's justifiable. It's understandable. It's appropriate. And so we looked last week at the revelation of God's rage, and we saw how it says here, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That, that word wrath is the word orge, which is a word used to describe fruit swelling with juice until it bursts, a, a flower budding and, and, and blossoming, uh, blooming. Uh, same idea here that God's anger is, 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 is uh, swelling, it's, 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 it's blossoming, it's, it's blooming, it's going to build in its intensity until it just bursts forth on sinners someday. We said that uh, basically what the wrath of God is, a simple way to define it, it's how God feels about sin and what he must do about it. God hates sin and he must punish it. God's wrath is simply God's judgment against sin. And it says here, for the wrath of God, it doesn't say will be revealed. He's going to get to that later, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, talking about the coming wrath of God, storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. No, he, he's going to talk about the future wrath, but he's talking here about present wrath, for the wrath of God is presently, continually, constantly being revealed as we speak. And it's like Edward's illustration, it's like a dam, right, that's holding back the, the floods. But 
every once in a while, water will spill over the damway, causeway. And, and, and why, is, why is God angry? Who, who or what is God angry at or about? Well, for the wrath of God is revealed from, all heaven, uh, against, from heaven against all, what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness is disregard for God. Unrighteousness is disregard for God's commands. Ungodliness is a lack of respect and reverence for who God is. Unrighteousness is a lack of respect and reverence for what he has said. And so men are ungodly, they're unrighteous, and they demonstrate that by the fact that they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They're, they're constantly holding down the truth of God and trying to hold it captive and you know, whether it's the puppy in the box, the toy box, or the beach ball in the swimming pool, or the whatever in a, in a jail cell. That's the idea here of suppressing the truth. And they do it, notice, in unrighteousness. In other words, they suppress the truth so they can keep sinning. They love their sin. They don't want to stop sinning. And so as long as there's no God, there's no rules. And if there's no rules, there's no consequences. So then I can just go to do whatever I want, right? So Let's just pretend there's not a God and I'll just be okay with my sin. And yet God says that, that they suppress the truth in their righteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. In other words, God's made it unmistakably clear that he exists. Um, primarily here, he says, through creation... For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So the invisible God, God's invisible, the Bible says he's invisible, so how does an invisible God let us all know he's here? Well, he creates stuff. He creates a world filled with his glory. John Calvin said that the universe is a theater for God's glory. It's, a, it's the way he, he kind of puts on display. He shows off his glory in all sorts of ways, through the sunsets and the mountains and the oceans and the flowers and the babies and the human body. And God has not left himself without a witness. He's provided tons of evidence that he exists so that we are without excuse, it says. No one can claim ignorance and, 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 and uh, innocence in regards to God. And, and his wrath, like, you're not going to be able to stand before God someday and say, hey, I didn't get the memo. How was I supposed to? Nobody told me. I don't deserve to be punished. You can't punish me. That's not fair. And God will simply say, you know what? You knew better. You all knew better. You all stand guilty before a holy God. And so... This was the revelation of God's wrath. We looked at last week, verses 18 through 20. Now, this morning, I want to move on to the other two particulars here, and we're going to look next at the reason for God's rage. The reason. We saw the revelation of God's rage, the fact that it's happening even as we speak. But what is the reason specifically for God's rage? And, and, and we're going to see that in verses 21 through 23. And, and just specifically, we could just say this, instead of acknowledging God, well, why is God so mad? Instead of acknowledging God and seeking him, man rejects the clear revelation of himself and rebels against him. That's the bottom line of verses 21 through 23. Notice he says, for even though they knew God, why, why are they without excuse? For even though they knew God, they know, they know there's a God. In other words, God doesn't believe in atheists, right? There's no such thing as an atheist. They, 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 know, they know God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So our rebellion consists of two things. Number one, we're disrespectful. And number two, we're ungrateful. We don't honor God, it says, in other words, we refuse to recognize God for who he is as our creator, our ruler, our sustainer, the one who controls everything in our lives, and we just, we just rebel against his authority. We live in independence from him as if we were in charge of our lives. We, we don't give him the rightful place that he deserves in our lives. We're disrespectful. We don't honor him. But secondly, we're ungrateful. 
We, we do not honor Him as God or give thanks. We refuse to acknowledge that we are living on God's earth, walking on His dirt, eating His food, drinking His water, breathing His air, enjoying His creation. We don't acknowledge our indebtedness to Him as the source of all things, that He gives life and breath and all things, that, that we owe Him everything. We would not even be here were it not for Him. And so this is important for us to see that, that sin, the essence of sin, is not so much what we do, but what we don't do. And the reason why we do all the bad things that we do is because we don't do the right thing, which is to honor God and give Him thanks. And instead, what do we do? It says, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Their thinking became empty and useless. They, they were left to go on futile quests to find real purpose and meaning in life. Listen, if you remove God from the equation, you're left to figure out life on your own. And you might as well have dropped yourself in this impossible maze, right? And, and spend the rest of your life trying to figure that thing out. Going down all these things thinking, oh, oh this is the way. This is, this is the reason why. This is the purpose. And this is the way. And, and all of a sudden, you just, you just keep hitting one dead end after another. One dead end after another. And it's just frustrating. It's no wonder why so many unbelievers end up committing suicide. Because life just becomes this hopeless attempt to find meaning and purpose apart from God. It says that they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. I think the idea here is that they become spiritually blinded. Their mind, their will, their emotions become more and more wicked and sinful. It, and, and it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And notice it says that, that, that their foolish heart was darkened. In other words, what they think and what they do doesn't make any sense at all. It's as if they were lost in this cave and, and they were trying to find their way out and here comes the rescue party with a torch and they see the light coming around the corner and they run the other way deeper into the cave. It doesn't make any sense. But that's the idea of their, their foolish heart was darkened. And notice what he says in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Here they're thinking, look how smart we are. You know, we can have all these um, intellectual debates about, you know, why it's illogical to think that God would exist. And, and we've come up with this amazing plan of evolution, this theory of evolution. And, and, and look at how smart we are to, to define all the different ways that that happened. And, you know, it, it, they think they're smart. They think they're intellectual when really they're fools. Because, as it says in Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then notice, it says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's the stupidest thing you could ever do. That you exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God of the universe for an image, an idol, in the form of man. So let's just create this big statue of some guy with a big fat belly and worship him. That's Buddhism. Have you ever been to a Buddhist temple? That's who's there. You walk in and there he is, Buddha. Big fat guy sitting up there that we're supposed to worship. And you're like, wait, you traded God of the universe for that? Okay. How about birds in the form of a man, birds? You think about totem poles, for example. Oftentimes you see a bird on the top of that, right? The spiritism 
worshiping the animals and the birds, and uh, that's very common in, in, in Indian nations. Uh, four-footed creatures, it says here. Four-footed animals. If you go to India, you, you, you know about Hinduism, and they worship cows and, and, and rats, and, and you're not allowed to kill a cow because that you know, could be your uncle and, you know, uh, reincarnated in the form of a lower life form, but, you know, you have to honor. And, and so cows are gods and, and uh, they worship this elephant, Ganesh. You walk into these little temples on this, on, on every street has a little temple you can go and you can do your little thing. And, and there's this elephant God, really grotesque creature. But that's their God. They exchange the, you, you, seriously, you exchange the glory of the incredible God for an elephant man thing and crawling creatures you may know this but in ancient egyptian religion the beetle was a god that they worshiped a beetle a cockroach you're you're exchanging the the glory of god and worshiping him to, to so you can worship a cockroach I think that's the idea. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. It, it makes absolutely no sense. God said in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself what? An idol of any likeness, of what is in heaven, above, or on earth, beneath, or in the water, under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And we don't have time to read this, but you might just want to write this down. Isaiah 44, verses 9 to 19. It's a really almost humorous um, critique of idolatry and how silly and stupid it is to worship idols that a guy goes out and he cuts down a tree and cuts it in half and half of it he lights a fire and cooks his dinner and the other half he carves into an idol and worships that and bows down and calls that God how stupid is that it's ridiculous and that's God's point silly be like me showing up, you know, this, this morning and, 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 and kind of propping up a mannequin, a guy mannequin up here and say, hey, I just want you all to meet my dad. And my dad's sitting in the back going, that boy's lost his marbles. What, what, he's an idiot. What, what's his problem? He's a moron. That, that's, by the way, the, the word foolish here is the word where we get, from where we get moron. It's moronic for me to get up and try to convince you that this is my dad. It's a mannequin. Are you serious? What's your problem? And of course, not only would that be sad to my real dad, it would be potentially offensive. As it is with, with our Heavenly Father. Turn over quickly to Acts 17, just backwards a few pages Acts 17, and here is the account. I just want to read for you the, and remind you of the account of Paul on Mars Hill. This is when he was grabbed by the scruff of the neck by the Areopagus there in Athens. And um, he was just there trying to mind his own business. And they had kind of left him there, his friends, and said, hey, you just kind of stay put here. He was, everybody was trying to kill Paul. And uh, so they kind of said, Paul, you just kind of here and stay in Athens, lie low. Don't get yourself into trouble. We'll be back to get you in a few days. Well, you can't tell Paul, right, to lie low. It says he was waiting for them at Athens. This is verse 16. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was serving the city full of idols. So he's kind of out there looking around, trying not to get in trouble, and he's just seeing idols everywhere he turns. He's tripping over idols. And he can't help himself. He just starts to preach. He find, yeah, i got to find a synagogue. i got to preach. And as people were hearing him preach, like, what is this guy talking about, this resurrection from the dead, this Jesus guy coming back to life? And so these, these Areopagus grab him, and they brought him to the place where they would sit around and, and talk about stuff and, and, and philosophize and theorize about life and religion and, 
and it was kind of like the Jedi Council. That's the picture I get. And he was kind of plopped down in the center of them. They're all sitting around saying, okay, tell us about Jesus. Tell us about the resurrection. And I love how he goes about this. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Hey, I'll give it to you. You guys are really religious. No question about it. That was his, his, his kind of a lead-in, if you will, his, his connection. For a while it was passing. How do I know you're religious? For a while I was passing through and examining the object of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. In other words, just in case, they were covering all their bases, right? In case they forgot one. We're going to make sure we have this one. We can say, oh, that was you. You were the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in what? What does it say? Ignorance. Again, there's the word moron, okay? (laughs) What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God, not a God, the God, only one, who made the world and all things in it. He's the creator, Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he's the ruler, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, the boundaries of their habitation. So God is the the controller of everything. Determined when everyone would live, where everyone would live. Why? Verse 27, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. In other words, that we would look around us and go, hmm, this, this had to come from somewhere, right? The fact that I woke up this morning, right, that had to happen for some reason, and, and you begin to grope, if you will, in the darkness like you would as you walk into a dark room and you assume somebody put a light bulb somewhere in that room and so you start going like this along the wall looking for what? A light switch. And so that was the idea that God was going to put all these witnesses out there, all these hints, if you will, that he's there so that we would be groping around looking for him, seeking him, for in him we live and move and exist as even some of their, your own poets have said, for we uh, also are his children. Being then, here it is, verse 29, the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Why in the world would you think all these idols are God? We shouldn't think that. We were created in his image. And so Paul Again, it's a good example of how do we go about reaching people in a culture of just riddled with idolatry. And by the way, in our Western culture, it's not necessarily a a statue that we're bowing down to. It might be our home or our car or our job or our spouse or, you know, we have all these other idols in our Western culture that we worship And notice verse 25, back to Romans 1. Notice verse 25, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie. He expands on this. He mentions this whole exchange thing again. Verse 23, he exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Then look at verse 25, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words... Ultimately, we worship ourselves instead of God. And so Paul's point is that, that, that we, mankind, has deliberately and foolishly rebelled against God and his revelation. Should we be surprised? That he's mad at us? Should that be so shocking? I mean, this is the worst crime anyone could ever commit to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Doesn't get any worse than that. And so it's deserving of the most severe punishment imaginable. That's the reason for God's rage. Now, Let's look at the result of God's rage, okay? The result of God's rage. 
And as we mentioned already, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed, is being revealed, literally is being revealed right now. This present tense, ongoing revealing or manifest, manifestation, if you will, of God's wrath that Paul was referring to here, thinking about here, I don't think comes in the form of tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and floods and fires and mass shootings. That's typically what we think of, right? Well, God is judging our country. God is judging that country, those people, with some natural, natural disaster, right? Or, or some horrific situation, which may be part of this. But that's not what Paul was thinking when he wrote this. It's like, watch out, there's going to be tsunamis, there's going to be global warming, there's going to be, all, you know, watch out, there's going to be fires, there's going to be mass shootings, and, 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 and I say that because there's some churches that, that anytime something like that happens in our country, they get out their picket signs and they go picketing saying, you know, this is, you know, God's wrath on our nation. And they are, they're obnoxious about it. And, and I think they're missing the point. And we're going to see some of the things that we are, that are so in our face, uh, in our culture, are merely symptomatic of a much deeper rooted issue. And so what is it that Paul had in mind, this present tense, ongoing manifestation of God's wrath? It was people being given over to their sin. And notice what he says three times, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. And verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Three times, Paul said that God gave us over. This is a judicial term that is used or was used to describe a judge sentencing someone, handing them over for punishment. This is what we could call retribution. This is, this is payback. This is revenge. What did Jonathan Edwards preach about? The vengeance of God. Vengeance is mine, saith who? The Lord. You're like, well, I don't like to think about God and revenge. That doesn't sound Christian-like. <laughs> that doesn't sound God-like, revenge. I know when I think about revenge, that's a bad thing. We only know revenge as a bad thing as sinners, that, that our revenge is, is wicked, it's evil, it's, it's, it's selfish, it's prideful. But God's revenge is holy, it's righteous, it's pure, it's untainted by sin. And so we need to get comfortable with that expression, righteous revenge. And so this is what we're seeing. We're seeing God's righteous revenge He's simply saying, hey, I revealed myself to you very clearly so that you're without excuse, no questions, that I'm here for you, want to have a relationship with you. You rejected that revelation and you rebelled against me and you went off and did your own thing. And so basically, this is what you get in return. You say, what? What, what, what do they get in return? Don't miss this. The punishment for sin is more sin. The punishment for sin is more sin. And I think this, this is the scary thing about this passage. I mean, this is the scariest thing in the world is that when God gives us exactly what we want, he removes his restraining hand, if you will, and allows us to go deeper and, and deeper into sin. And, and listen, if you get caught, if you in, are in some pattern of sin or you're sinning and you get caught, that's a good thing. That's called the mercy of God. That's called the grace of God. But when you are able to go on sinning more and more and more without getting caught, that is God unleashing his wrath on you. Or more precisely, we could say he's unleashing us to experience the full extent of his wrath. He's giving us over. I mean, imagine if you had a junkyard dog. I mean, just a mean old dog. 
that hated everyone and, and, and loved, lived to chase cars. And, and so you kept that sucker chained up to, to, you know, to protect himself and to protect others. And, and, and just, you know, that dog just kept pulling out that chain, pulling out that chain, pulling out that chain. And finally, you just let him loose. And he's going to experience the consequences of his desires. When he gets run over by a truck or he gets shot by the neighbor. That's the idea of just giving us over. And, and don't miss this. This is so key to this whole flow of thought that Paul's laying out for us here. How idolatry leads to impurity. Right? We're talking about idolatry, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for images. And where does that lead? Idolatry leads to impurity. Or stated another way, spiritual deviation results in moral degradation. You deviate away from the truth of God and His Word, and you are bound to become a degenerate. And so notice this downward spiral here from idolatry to immorality to homosexuality to insanity. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their desires to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Again, why? For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is a, a clear reference to sexual immorality, the reference to the body there, that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Uh, 1 Corinthians six eighteen, Paul said, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart, made holy, specifically that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Or don't acknowledge God, and that in, the, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. You say, what is sexual morality? How would you define sexual morality? Paul says we're to avoid sexual morality. Well, I think it's simply anything that violates God's design or intent for sex. And we know based on the scriptures that the only sexual relationship ordained by God and approved by God is between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. Genesis 2.24, the first marriage, the first wedding, if you will. God said a man shall leave, a man shall leave his what? father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers will, God will judge. So anything that violates God's design for sex falls under this general category, verse 24, of impurity, premarital sex, adultery, orgies, polygamy, pornography, you fill in the blank. And I can't help but see, you know, you're, hopefully you see this, how relevant this passage is to what we're seeing in our culture today. Just in the last few weeks, this, 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 um, barrage of sexual harassment claims. All these, these well-known men being accused of sexual misconduct. What's going on here? It's just simply showing how pervasive sexual perversion is in our society. And maybe it's just kind of been hidden, right? But it's been happening. And now it's being exposed. I read an article I thought was uh, very interesting, kind of um, analyzing this whole sexual harassment 
um, reckoning, national reckoning maybe, you could, if you want to call it that. And it was an article titled, We're a Nation of Porn Addicts. Why are we surprised by the perverts in our midst? That caught my eye. Thought I should read that article, right? And just, just a quote, quick quote here. The author said this, as we enter our third month of the pervert explosion, that's how they're describing it, it may be time to consider why we have so many perverts, where they come from, and what sort of things might be contributing to their perverseness. To that end, might I point out the fact that we spend four billion hours a year watching porn. Based on the latest surveys and statistics, Americans watch more porn than anyone else on earth. Porn is obviously America's favorite pastime. It's no wonder that the porn industry is worth $97 billion. They said this, today porn grosses more in a year than Hollywood. It also brings in more money than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. What are we to make of these staggering statistics? What the author called apocalyptic figures. It's just evidence that America is under God's judgment. And I think we need to understand this, and, and, and this is an important idea here, that, that the perversion that we see in our country is not the cause of God's wrath, but the consequence of God's wrath. Big difference. It's not like, oh, look, Sodom and Gomorrah. We're, we're Sodom and Gomorrah, and God's angry with us, and, you know, so he's going to judge us as a result of our perversion. No, our perversion is God's judgment. We're reaping what we've sown. We're, we're experiencing the consequences of our action. In other words, Sexual immorality and, and homosexuality and all the things that are in this passage isn't the reason for God's judgment, but the judgment itself. And again, that's why I think this passage is, man, it's a go-to passage whenever I have a chance to talk with an unbeliever and they want to argue about the existence of God and they want to argue about this or that. I say, can I just read you this? I remember one time uh, in Kelly and I's first apartment, shortly after we got married, I was in seminary and we were trying to reach out to our neighbor across the hall and we had him over for dinner. He was a, a single guy and, you know, just kind of a self-made man, a kind of macho guy and, and uh, real friendly and, and we were just having dinner together and so we began to share Christ with him and, and he just wanted to argue. And, and he had an answer for everything. And, and, and I, I kind of got a little frustrated, feeling like, man, this isn't going anywhere. And, and I just said, hey, you know what? I said, can I, just, can I just read you something? And I just began. In Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then read this and got to the point, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And, then, and just read this passage and tell you what, you could hear a pin drop in our dining room. He had absolutely nothing to say. How can you refute this? It's so clear. It's so obvious that this is exactly what is happening in our country. Several years ago, I wanted to take my family back to New England where I was born and raised in Massachusetts. And um, I thought, hey, you know, I, I would love to... Um, while we're there, not only just see my own hometown, but check out some of these old historic sites. I mean, there's a lot of church history that went down there, the Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards, and, and, and man, we want to kind of check out some of these cool places. And, and so I started doing some research on Jonathan Edwards and where he lived and ministered while he was in, in New England. And it was, 
It was in Northampton, Massachusetts, which was just right up the street, literally about 40 minutes away from where I grew up. I thought, how cool is that? We're going. So I started doing some research and looking up, you know, Northampton, Mass, Wikipedia, and just trying to, the demographics and, you know, all this kind of stuff and where the sites would be, where is, you know, any plaques might be and this church would be. And, and I was so brokenhearted to the point where I decided, I don't want to go to Northampton. I don't want to see these sites. It's not worth it. I don't want to bring my family there. Because what I found was the effects of Romans 1, or the results, if you will, of Romans 1. Over, what, 200 years plus of degradation after this church fired Jonathan Edwards after 23 years of faithful ministry in this church, they fired him because he insisted that the Lord's Supper was only for believers. That sounds orthodox to me, right? That, that only Christians should take communion. They fired him. And they ran him out of town. And, and so this is an example of a church exchanging the truth of God for a lie and, and that church and the community in which that church resides has never been the same since. God put that church, God puts churches in communities to be salt and light. Amen? To, to stay off sin and unrighteousness. And well, what happens when you remove a, a man of God and you remove the word of God from a community? Well, today, Northampton is known as an artistic Musical, liberal, and countercultural hub. This is, you can read about this. It's interesting to me. According to Wikipedia, the city has a high proportion of residents who identify as gay and lesbian, a high number of same sex households, and is a popular destination for the LB, LGBTQ community. In fact, the church, the very church that Jonathan Edwards used to pastor, still there, different building. They had to tear it down, build it back up, right, multiple times over the years. But it's the same church, and that church promotes itself on its website as an open and affirming church and a forerunner in welcoming people of every sexual orientation into the life of the church. And if you go to visit that church, the first thing you'll see is a rainbow flag out front that says, all are welcome. In fact, when they heard the news two years ago that the Supreme Court had affirmed marriage equality, same-sex marriage, right? And Obama lit up the White House, you know, in rainbow colors. And, well, this church organized a celebration on the front steps of the church on the same piece of flagstone that was at the original church building where Edwards was the pastor and had faithfully preached God's word. That's the one thing that's preserved there is that, that big flagstone, apparently. And again, this is just the tragic progression the natural result of a group of people rejecting God's truth, rejecting God's man, what do you think is going to happen? What Paul describes here in Romans 1. Well, we didn't get as far as I had hoped, but we'll come back next week and, and hopefully finish up the rest of this description, but... Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us process all this. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And uh, we are so humbled and convicted as we just look at this and read this. And this is, hits eerily close to home because we see this going on uh, in our, our own culture here in America. And there may be some individuals who see this progression in their own life, that they've rejected the true knowledge of you, and so they've been given over by you to immorality and maybe even homosexuality, and, and they're headed for insanity, according to verse 28, a reprobate mind, a depraved mind that doesn't work correctly, and I pray that, Lord, as they would just be 
shocked and stunned, sobered by the truth of your word and that you would be gracious to grant them repentance and faith today so that your wrath will no longer abide in them. We thank you for the hope of the gospel that, that, that you abandoned your son on the cross and that's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You abandoned your beloved son so that we would not have to be abandoned. I pray that we would be faithful to share that good news with those around us who need to desperately hear it. If, and so, Lord, we just ask that we would uh, put into practice this passage. We would think rightly. We would live rightly as a result of what we've heard this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.